we've been in a series uh, that Pastor Julio has been leading us through, uh, a summer series on, on what we're called to, that we're called as followers of Jesus to belong to his family. We're called to believe in him and to have faith and to grow our faith throughout our life. And we're called to become, that we're a work in progress, right? That we've not arrived yet, we're not going to arrive but the good news is we continue to grow and, and we can become more like Christ and we can become more the person that God designed us to be, called to believe, to belong, and to become. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage that shows us that in order to do that, in order to become everything God has called us to do, we are called to obedience. We're called to obedience. Luke chapter 6, 46 to 49 is where we'll be this morning. But you know, before we go there, I want to ask you, have you noticed that there's always two sides to a coin? And I don't mean just that there's a front and back, but that there's two images to a coin. Everywhere I've gone in the world, and I've had the privilege of going several places to see God at work in different parts of the world. And everywhere I go, everybody has currency, right? There's coins and there's bills. And now, of course, we have cryptocurrency, which you can't really see. But, but let's just talk about old-fashioned currency. There's coins, there's bills, there's two sides to it, right? There's two sides to every coin. Now, now you might find a rare coin somewhere that was maybe misprinted and actually rare coins like that could have a lot of value because they're so unique. Uh, that particular one, I think, goes for hundreds of dollars if you find it uh, because it's just a misprint, right? And we're, we're kind of funny about that in America. We like rare things and we'll pay a lot of money for something that's just different and so we can have something different. But in general, a coin that doesn't have two sides is of no value. Right? If you try to pay with a $100 bill, it only has one side, you'll be going straight to jail. You know, do not pass go, do not collect 200 right? You, it, we, can't, we can't use one-sided currency because one-sided currency is of no value. So keep that in mind as we read this morning's scripture passage. Like I said, it's Luke chapter 6 starting in verse 46. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to welcome, uh, feel free to welcome, feel free to welcome your Bible to your presence, <laughs> open your Bible, uh, and let's read God's word. It'll be on the screen as well, if you'd like to follow along. This is Jesus speaking. It says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Thanks be to God for his word. Like I said, we've been exploring what it means to belong, to believe, and to become. And today we're going to look at doing that through obedience. Now, I have to admit, obedience is kind of uncomfortable to talk about, right? Especially in our independent, free-minded, free-thinking world, uh, evangelical world as well, where we believe that every individual believer has, its own, has their own priesthood, your own connection to God. So I'm not talking about obedience to me or obedience to somebody else. If you're going to be obedient to anybody, it to be your mom, your dad, and Jesus, all right? Those are probably the only three people that we really need to make sure, and, and the law, but that's a whole different thing. Uh, but we're going to talk about obedience, and it's a little bit uncomfortable, but what I hope you hear today 
is the way Jesus puts obedience in this passage is obedience is not something to be measured by what it costs us. Because I think that's often kind of the rub, right? Like, the, you know, what's obedience going to cost me? How is it going to limit me? Or, or how is it going to restrict me? What am I going to have to sacrifice or give up in order to obey? And even going back to the first century when the Christians who first followed Jesus, they had to even pay with their lives in order to obey Jesus. That still happens in the world today. There are places in this world where if you're obeying Jesus, it might cost you your life. And yet here, it's a lot easier, isn't it, for us? Easier and then it isn't, because sometimes it may cost you your reputation. Sometimes it may cost you a certain, a certain vibe or a certain status that you want to have with people if we really obey Jesus. But let's not measure obedience by what it costs us, but let's do as Jesus teaches us here, and let's measure obedience by what we gain. Because here Jesus is painting us a picture of what we gain when we obey him, all right? You with me? So first thing we see here in the passage is that Jesus calls his disciples to hear and obey. It's an invitation. It's, it's Jesus saying very clear, look, if you're going to call me Lord, if I'm going to be your savior, if I'm your God, then you must hear what I teach you and obey. Let's break down that text a little bit further in Luke 6, when Jesus says, you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And he, and he begins to show, he, he begins to give us a word picture of this is what it looks like to be someone who listens and obeys versus someone who listens but doesn't put it into practice. It says the one who, who, who obeys, who puts it into practice, is someone, he says, who builds a house, who dug down deep. Now, what's interesting here in the original uh, passage in Greek is Jesus uses two different verbs. He uses a verb that, that's called eskapsin, eskapsin, and that means to dig. But then he adds a second verb on top of that for emphasis. He uses the verb epathunin, and epathunin means to dig deep. So why does Jesus do that? He, he's telling us a story, but he's emphasizing that the person who listens and obeys is like the person who digs down deep. Jesus puts the emphasis here on effort. There is an effort made by this person, a conscious effort that takes time and energy and sweat and investment to do the thing that Jesus is describing here. Now, I hope you follow here that we're not talking about this is the way to get to heaven, this is a way to please God, right? Because obviously we can do nothing to get to heaven. We can do nothing to please God. He himself came to us first, and that's the grace of God. But once we belong to him, there's work to be done if, if, and this is the big if, this is the choice you and I have to make, if we want to look like the first person in this story, or if not, Jesus tells us you're going to look like, you're going to end up like the second person in this story. But if you want to look like the first person in the story, it's going to require effort. Because then what happens is if you, it, that person built his house on rock, but then a flood came. And the idea here, the image is, is this overflowing river. Right? And we've all seen pictures, whether it's after hurricanes or tsunamis or just huge rains that recently pummeled the Northeast. Once rivers overflow their banks, look out, right? Anything that's in the way begins to get swept up if it's not anchored down. Even houses get swept up if they're not anchored down deep. So Jesus says the flood comes and it overflows. It sweeps everything in its path along it, that torrent that comes but he says, but there's two, re two different responses here, two different reactions, right? There's a house that doesn't move. It's not shaken 
Maybe it is shaken, but it doesn't come loose. And then there's a house that not only does it come loose, but it collapses. And Jesus says its destruction was complete. Now imagine being one of the disciples hearing this. Some people think this is the same time as in Matthew 5 through 7 when Jesus preaches a sermon on the mount. Other scholars think, no, you know, Jesus taught the same things in different times and different places. And this is a different place possibly where he's saying similar things that he did on the Sermon on the Mount, where he also tells the story of the wise builder and the foolish builder. But imagine being there listening to Jesus and Jesus says, hey, look, you know, if you're going to listen, if you're going to follow me, this is what it looks like. You've got to put into practice the things I say, or else when the floods come, your life will collapse and destruction will be complete. All right, now who wants to go to lunch? Right, Jesus ends right there. It's kind of like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. What, what am I supposed to do with that? And that's exactly the point, right? Jesus wants us to do something with his teaching. Notice that both houses were likely shaken. Both houses were struck by the flood. And I think a lot of times I have historically looked at this passage and thought about the flood or the storm as those hard things in life that come against us, right? That personal crisis, that financial hardship, that health challenge, these personal crises that come against us. I think that qualifies as a river, right? As a storm that comes against us. But I think today we also need to realize it may not only be about the personal crisis that we have to guard against and, and shore up for, but it's also that there's a flood of culture. There's a flood of pressure against the things of God and the teachings of God. There's a flood of pressure that comes against us when we try to follow and implement the teachings of Jesus. And that flood could also sweep us away if we're not anchored in the teachings and the practices of Jesus. So you will feel attacks, your world will be rocked, but which response will be yours? Which outcome will be yours? The house that stands strong or the house that gets swept up and utterly destroyed? Now, like I said, Jesus invites us, first of all, as disciples to hear and obey. And this idea comes actually from the Old Testament in what's called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. The most famous, well-known verse for Jews or Israelites throughout history is this verse. They call it the Shema from that initial word, hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and with all your strength. And that idea of hear in the Old Testament scripture is, is a joint word that means hear and obey. There's no distinction, right? He doesn't have to say hear and obey because the word itself means hear and obey, right? Listen and put into practice. So for the Hebrew mind, there was no distinction. It's like that coin with two sides. One coin, but it has two sides. It's hearing God and putting into practice. One side is listening to what he's saying. The other side is doing what Jesus says. Okay, so it's pretty simple, isn't it? This teaching is pretty straightforward. Jesus says, hey, hear my word, put it into practice. You'll be better off that way, right? Do you follow? And I think we could stop right there. We could say, okay, we're done. Message is over. Shortest sermon in history. Let's go home, right? Uh, we could finish there, but except I think there's a problem. There's a challenge, right? And the challenge is that we often live on one side of the coin where we're hearing God or maybe we've heard God, but putting it into practice, sometimes that's a little more challenging, isn't it? Uh, why? Why is it hard to implement? I, I propose to you four, four reasons why. The first one is that maybe it's because we have our own desires, don't we? We have our own plans and sometimes they might clash 
with what we hear Jesus teaching us. Or secondly, perhaps we have cultural cues that we instinctively follow. And again, it's that sense that, that the culture has ways and pressure and the culture is always trying to get our attention and our affection and to capture us and captivate us. And, and sometimes we do things because that's what the culture does, but is it what Jesus has taught us to do? Even in the church, even in the Christian church, we have to stop from time to time and ask ourselves, hey, do we do this because of the culture or do we do this because Jesus actually wants us to do this? Right, it's a good question to ask because it's hard to implement the teachings of Jesus when we're following our traditions or our cultural norms and if they're not in sync. A third reason of why it might be hard to implement is that we have an enemy seeming, aiming to deceive us. And that's just the facts. Jesus said the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the best way to do that is to deceive you from the teachings of Jesus so that your house will end up, your life will end up like that house that gets swept away by the storms. These are all probably reasons why this is hard to implement, but maybe the fourth one, and, and, and to me, one of the most concerning is that we just don't know how sometimes. Sometimes we just don't know how to implement the practices of Jesus. Uh, and so that's what I want to focus on the rest of our time this morning. We get that it's important, don't we? I mean, Jesus paints a very powerful picture here. A house that withstands the storms versus a house that gets totally swept away. And so the second thing we get from this is that obedience to Jesus is like building a foundation on bedrock. We get that that's important. And, and, and Jesus makes that clear. And the picture he gives us is that obeying him is like building the foundation on bedrock. Now, I'm no civil engineer, but I like to learn new things that I don't know anything about. So as I was thinking about foundations and, and, and buildings and structures, I did a little bit of research, and I, and I found this image of, of, uh, of the importance of digging deep. Now, if you're going to build a huge structure, as you see up there, you have to have a good foundation at the surface level, but then you have to have piles or pylons, whatever you might call them, that go deeper into the bedrock, right? That part of the earth that isn't going to shake as much as the upper layers that will shake. Now, I think here in the valley, our bedrock is like two feet below, right? It's not that far down. I'm not sure. Uh, you don't have to, we, we were so flat here, you don't have to dig super deep uh, to get to hard ground. Uh, but in other places, you have to dig really deep in order to build a sturdy structure that will withstand. But what I love about this image, too, is that when things shake or when pressure comes, it distributes the weight through those piles all the way down to the foundation. And I think about the storms of life. When the storms of life come, they feel like a weight, right? They feel like this gigantic pressure. And are you, are you bearing that alone? Or are your roots deeply built on the foundation of Jesus? So it distributes the weight of those pressures. And you're not handling it on your own, but you're handling it on the rock of Jesus. So practicing the teachings of Jesus is like building deep foundations for a tall structure. And in order to do that, it, it takes serious commitment, doesn't it? It takes seriousness and it takes commitment. It takes work, like we saw in those Greek verbs. Uh, but when the hard times come, it's, it pays off. It, it, it transfers the load. It supports us when things get tough. And things, by the way, if you haven't heard, will get tough, right? Christian or non-Christian, living in this world, male or female, young or old, things get tough tough. The flood comes. Are we ready for it? And how do you withstand it? You know, back in about 2008, 
uh, one of those big polling groups, Gallup or Barna, I'm not sure which one it was. They were surveying Christians in America. They were surveying actually all sorts of Americans, which they always do. And, but they asked, they asked specifically, hey, are, do you think you're a Christian or do you identify as a Christian? And people said yes. And they asked them about their divorce rates among Christians. And they found that the divorce rate among people who identified as Christian was just as high as the divorce rate of people who weren't Christians. And people began to say, look, there's no difference. Following Jesus doesn't help you any because something as, as simple or one of those kind of things that happens in life, which is marriage and, and the divorce, it's the same. When, it, when, a, when a marriage falls apart, it's the same for a Christian as a non-Christian. And Christian leaders were struck by this and a little bit shocked, like, whoa, what are we doing wrong, right? But more recently, there was another survey done that went deeper and they discovered that that initial survey had just asked people who just considered themselves Christian, right? They didn't ask whether you were a serious Christian, a committed Christian, how often you went to church, how often do you read your Bible? They just said, ah, you're a Christian, right? And a lot of people kind of identify by default. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Hindu, so therefore I'm a Christian. And when the survey was broken up into, well, but are you a serious follower of Jesus? Do you read your Bible? Do you go to church? Do you pray regularly? the divorce rate actually goes way down of, of couples who do that. And so you see the difference there. The difference is that people who take their faith seriously, people who are serious disciples and dig in the foundation of Jesus, they enjoy significantly lower divorce rates than mere church members or the general public or unbelievers. So even on something like marriage, when you apply God's word, when you apply God's practices in your life, you end up stronger. You end up able to withstand more storms. So what are some of the things that you might be asking, well, then what does Jesus call us to do and how do we put it into practice? You know, there's so many, so many great teachings of Jesus and they're actually very challenging, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Wow, that's hard. How do you do that constantly? But it doesn't stop there. It gets harder, right? Because Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh man, who has neighbors here? How many of you have neighbors? <laughs> How many of you have that neighbor, if you know what I mean, right? <laughs> you know, we have great neighbors. I think we live in a great neighborhood, just five or six minutes from here. We love it. Um, and it's a great neighborhood. Uh, but, you know, there's always that neighbor, right? There's always, and you hope that you're not that neighbor sometimes. But, you know, uh, you know there's that neighbor who uh, lets their little dogs out in the front yard and lets them loose and they start to wander and not only do they harass my dogs who are behind the fence trying to get out, right? But, but then they leave their uh, business in my front yard. Anybody have that neighbor, you know? And, uh, you know, or, you know, neighbors who just kind of maybe decide to have a party at 3 a.m. with really loud music. You know, there's always that one or two neighbor, right? Um, and you don't want to be that. So how do we love our neighbors, right? And there's so many practical, tangible things we could do, right? But it's hard. It's a challenge. Uh, how do we forgive? Like Jesus says, hey, forgive those who insult you and persecute you. And you say, okay, yeah, when they ask for forgiveness, I'll forgive them. No, Jesus says, no, you forgive them no matter what, whether they ask for it or not. Build others up, share what you have, turn the other cheek. Man, Jesus actually makes it really hard for us to implement his teachings when you look at all the things that he says. But the, the beauty of it is he doesn't leave us alone to implement them on our own. He says, you try, you dig, but he'll supply the power because he says the Holy Spirit will come in us and will be with us and will teach us and instruct us and make us able to do those things that are hard for us to do. Uh, but we have to position ourselves in a place where he can do that. 
So, so I could give you a long list. We could talk about all the different things. Well, Jesus said this, how do we do it, right? But first of all, I can't be an expert on that because I'm still working on that. <laughs> I'm still working to implement the teachings of Jesus. And there's so many that, that, that would be hard to, to, to cover here in one morning. So instead, I want to do this to, to finish our time together. I don't want to go list by list, like here's what Jesus teaches and how do you do it. Instead, I'd like to offer you uh, a practice or a regular, uh, a way of life that will help you be in the habit of hearing God's word and putting it into practice. Because, you know, it's not just enough to say, oh yeah, I know the teachings of Jesus. I've heard them all my life. Now I need to just put them into practice. I think what Jesus invites us to in this passage is a, an ongoing relationship, right? Are you, are you looking for Jesus every day? Are you listening to him every day? Not just the words that he spoke, literally, but even in the Old Testament or in the Psalms, or are you sitting in his presence, just say, Lord, what do you have to tell me today? Is he a living Lord, or is he just a, a person in history that you try to learn from, like from a philosopher in life? Or, or is he someone you meet with every day and say, how can I put that into practice, what you're teaching me? So I'd like to suggest to you a, another picture that will help us to do this. The picture I'm going to show you is a picture of a trellis. It's a design, actually, of a trellis that looks a little bit like a Jewish menorah, right? like a Jewish lamp. But it's actually a trellis for a vineyard, for, for grapevines. And you see the vine coming out of the ground. And if you let grapevines grow, they'll grow wild. Uh, it doesn't take a lot. When we lived in the country of Georgia, it's just this paradise for, for vineyards. And people grow vineyards even in their front yards, and they kind of grow over their, car, their carports and stuff like that. Um, but if you let it grow wild, grapevines will grow. But if you put them on a trellis, if you give them guidance and direction and structure, they will be multiplied in terms of its abundance. They will grow so much more fruit and they will be so much better if they grow this way. Now, so what, so what am I saying by this? In, in ancient Christianity throughout the centuries, uh, there's, uh, Christians have practiced something called a regula. That's a Latin word where we get like the word for ruler. It's a straight line. But the regula was a term that meant rule of life. And, it's, and the word picture is like a trellis. It's like you have a structure for your life that you use to kind of guide your habits, to guide your schedule, to guide your life, and to help you be more fruitful. And that's not something we talk about in church much these days, but I want to suggest to you the third point is that obedience is cultivated best through a regula, through a rule of life. Now, I want to say again here, we're not talking about laws, right? We're not talking about, about laws that you must do. A rule of life is a set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. Did you catch that? A rule of life is a set of practices to guard our habits and to guide our lives. Just like that vineyard, right? The trellis allows it to, to, to guide it and to guard it so that it can grow and be fruitful. Now, I realize I'm introducing to you guys probably some, some new foreign concept, but to ancient Christians, this was the norm. And in other parts of the world, people still try to practice this kind of sense of what is my, what is my regular? What is my rule of life? What's interesting is this connects to the fact that before we were called Christians, if you remember in the book of Acts, before the term Christians came to be, followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. In other words, there was a way of life. There was a pattern of living that they were known for. And it was the way of Jesus. They were followers of the way. 
That was well before the Mandalorian, by the way. You know, this is the way, right? Uh, we've made that popular in our time, but that reminded me of this. It reminded me, yeah, hey, Jesus had a way for us. He has a, he has a way for us, a code, a, a way to walk, a, a, a path of life that if we're willing to do it, it'll result in fruitfulness. And in the passage we've been reading, it'll result in allowing us to have that deep foundation on the rock. So a rule we're talking about here, like I said, it's not a law. And, and here's the thing, before it kind of makes you feel like, well, that's kind of strange, David. What does that mean? What does that look like? Here's the thing that's helped me is I realized, you know what? We all already have a rule of life. We all do. You have habits. You have um, schedules that you follow. You have principles and priorities that guide you to your routines and to your rhythms. You have your sources of information. You have all these things already. The question is, do you know what your rule is and what informs it? You see what I'm saying? We're all being discipled by something. We're all being taught and informed and guided by something or some things, right? Maybe it's a, a mix of things. And the question for us today is, are you able to kind of sort through that and say, well, but how am I being guided and informed by Jesus and by his teachings? It's been said, first, we make our choices and then our choices make us. So it's very important, I think, that we step back and realize, okay, we already have a rule of life. I already have things that kind of dictate what I do and why I do it and when I do it. So the question is then to identify, are those coming from a source of Jesus or are they coming from somewhere that may be unhealthy or unhelpful? So put another way, uh, is your rule of life helping you be fruitful? And here's, a, here's an image of, of grapes that grow on, on a trellis. Uh, they're so much more fruitful. And the question is for us is, do you feel like your life is fruitful? Spiritually, do you feel like your life is fruitful? Why is this important? It's important today, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, because the streams are rising fast, right? The storms are coming. And I don't mean to sound like, oh, the storms are coming. You know, it sounds like some dramatic thing. Uh, but, but I don't know if you've noticed, but storms seem to be intensifying in our world literally today. But not only literal storms, but emotional storms, spiritual storms, all these different things that happen, social, cultural storms, the floods are rising. There's a lot coming against us. So the question is, how can you live rooted and grounded, built on Jesus, the rock, with all these storms that are coming against us? I'd like to suggest to you five simple, quick uh, practices that I'm trying to implement into a rule of life. And like I said, I'm still, I'm still learning how to do this. I'm not an expert by any means, but I recognize that I need this kind of a trellis. I need this rule of life to help guide my practices so that I can be focused more on being like Jesus and ready for the storms of life. So here they are, five, five quick things. First, have healthy rhythms of work, play, and rest. I don't have time to go into this, but Jesus talks about the importance of rest especially, but, but do you have a healthy rhythm of work? You know, because it's easy to have an unhealthy rhythm of work, right? But, and also it's easy to not want to work, right? There's, there's got to be a healthy balance there. Do you have a healthy rhythm of work, of play, where play isn't, you know, dominating your time or your life? Um, and rest. And by rest here, I don't mean longer naps, right? We're not talking about just taking longer naps. When Jesus talks about rest, he's talking about doing things that re-energize our soul. When's the last time that you've just felt alive? Um, yesterday, I got to watch Jesus Revolution for the first time. Any of you seen Jesus Revolution? Interesting movie, right? Really, really cool. 
cool scenes. One of, the, one of those things was when, uh, when Greg Laurie, who's now a pastor, gets baptized and he comes out of the water and they ask him, how do you feel? He said, I feel alive, right? What are, so when Jesus talks about rest, he's talking about the things that help us feel alive, feel re-energized in him. So help, having healthy rhythms of that. So how do you structure your week or your month so that you have healthy balance in this? A second one is to have focused, intentional time with God in his word. Jesus said, the scriptures are there and you can read them, but when you read the scriptures, come to me. So here's my habit that I'm trying to practice. In the morning, first thing, well, first thing is coffee. Can I get an amen? <laughs> or tea or whatever you need. After coffee, I'm awake enough, I want to sit down and I want to read God's word. And I'm not talking about listening to somebody preach about God's word. I'm talking about reading God's word. I'm not talking about watching something that talks about God. I'm talking about read God's word. Because Jesus says in John 5, 39, when you read the word, you're coming to me. And the point is to meet with him. So the question I have for you is, are you meeting with Jesus every day? Whether it's the morning or maybe the night works for you, but do you set a time in your schedule? Is it in your rule of life to meet with Jesus intentionally in his word every day? A third one is prayer and fasting. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6. It says, when you pray and when you fast, I won't go into it. Uh, but that's something that I, I want to learn to get better at. You know, I, I grew up learning to, to pray at meals because we always would pray at meals. Thank you, God, for this food. Forgive us of our sins. Bless us. Amen. Right? But you can't, you can't really spend a long time in prayer at a meal because the food's going to get cold and people will be mad at you, right, because they're ready to eat. So you've got to find times of prayer to focus on praying for those who are hurting that are around you. Or maybe a different time where you're praying prayers of thanksgiving and just praising God and just enjoying fellowship with him. Or praying for, for hard things that are going on in the world or the people you love. Prayer and fasting. Uh, a third one, a fourth one is, are, are we practicing life-giving close community with other believers? Acts 2, 42 to 47. This was the habit of the early church. And it's a very important habit to have in our rule of life to grow as mature disciples of Jesus. And the last one is being and sharing good news. Uh, now, this is a hard one, right? Because especially in a, in a day when people don't want to hear about Jesus or they don't want to hear about our religion or our faith, how do we be good news? Maybe, maybe we, we just have to be good news before we can share good news. Um, but what are the different ways? Have you, have you prayed? Hey, Lord, this week, as I go into my work or as I go into school or wherever I go, help me be good news. Open a door of opportunity for me to just be good news to someone. We're, we're called to be people of good news. And if you intentionally build that into your routine and look for that, you'd be surprised at how God will work through you. So these are five practices or five habits that I think are, are helpful for us in building a rule of life or a structure that will help us to, to listen to Jesus and to implement the things that he has for us. But I hope this isn't overwhelming. This could easily be something like New Year's resolutions, right? Oh yeah, I'll do all five and I'll start tomorrow. But tomorrow comes and what happens? You know, you wake up and, you know, the water's leaking out of you know, your house or something. You know, some, your car won't start. You know, things are going to happen that are going to throw you off. So, so start small and just practice rhythms as best as you can. So a couple of examples of starting small. Take the first few minutes of your day, maybe without grabbing your phone. You know, I tend to look at, you know, baseball scores or things like that. You know, it's like, that's not going to change. That'll be there. But, but maybe take the first few minutes of your day and be still and read your Bible for five minutes, right? Or if you already do five, try for 10. And ask the two-sided questions to that coin. What is God saying to me? 
And what should I do in response? Boy, if you'll just do this one thing, try it at least six days this coming week, six out of seven, and just spend some time reading God's word and then saying, God, what are you saying to me? And what do I need to do as a response? How can I do something? Start small, but start somewhere. Examine your rule of life. Examine your habits and your routines. And I think that if we will do that and say, Jesus, teach me the way to build into my habits, to build into my routines, time with you and obedience to you, then we're going to find ourselves building our lives on the rock. And as the storms come, not only will we not be swept away, thank God, but here's a beautiful picture that I get in my mind. As the storms come and you're standing on the rock, you're going to be able to reach out your hands, your arms, and you're going to be able to catch people that are being swept away and bring them into the safety and the shelter of our faith in Jesus. Our, our, our building our house on Christ is not just for our own good, right? But it's for the good of others as well. So may we find ourselves this week uh, looking to intentionally hear the words of Jesus, hear the words of God, and putting them into practice. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you're so good to us, Lord. And you teach us. You teach us how to live. You teach us how to do life. You teach us how to do life well. You teach us how to build foundations so that we can endure the storms, the earthquakes, the, raising, the raging floods of, of culture and current around us. Um, God, we need you more than ever. We need wisdom. We need strength. We need faith. And I believe it's there for us. Help us to take it. Help us to build habits and intentional structures in our lives, Lord, so that we could be the Christians that, that you call us to be and that the world needs us to be. Lord, as I think about the little trellis and plant that I bought this weekend, just as my visual reminder, help each one of us to do something tangible, to put into practice the things that you're calling us to do. Lord, because we want to be different. We want to stand out. We want to be alive. And we want to feel empowered by your spirit in this very difficult time that we live in. So Lord, help us speak to us now as we respond during the song in Jesus' name. Amen.